Thank you, our fellow lovers of love, for joining us on this excursion down the stream of consciousness, through the river of tranquility, and on to the lake of love. Very good. Yay. <laughs> and it's quite timely tonight that we have a discussion about happiness. As we know, we have a, what, 35 minutes of frustration trying to fix a microphone problem. But yet, if you asked me 10 minutes ago, was I happy? Well, no, not at that moment. But was I happy in life? Well, of course I'm still happy in life. A moment of aggravation or panic or whatever you want to call that. So trying to get the show on the road. Does not an unhappy life make? And I was doing research this week for the show. This theme of happiness kept popping up just kind of randomly. I wasn't looking for it. It just kept popping up. So, all right, let's do what the nature is telling me. But before you can, def before you can talk about happiness, you have to kind of define what it is. What is happening? Is it a fleeting moment? Is it, you know, the glow you feel after a week's vacation. You deal with the day-to-day -day grind of what? Is it a combination of everything? Well, I mean, you know, our lives are a combination of everything. But, you know, those grand moments of happiness are more than countered out by moments of frustration anger, upset, whatever we want to call it, those, all those various things that happen to us throughout the lives. Illness, you know, sadness, because people you care about are going through difficult times, you know, but does that change your base happiness? And if someone asks you, are you happy? You can rattle off all the things in life that are wrong. But that shouldn't change the fact, are you happy? I mean, if I let all the things that happen in my life that go wrong define my happiness, I'd never be happy. But yet, despite all that, I'm actually a fairly happy guy. Yeah, you are. You really are. And it's, and it's not that... Irrational positivity. I'm not, you know, you, some people actually call me kind of a cynic. But <laughs> at the end, well, you're sarcastic, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's a neat little mix. Yeah. So at the end of the day, what is happiness? And before you can ask the question, answer the question, are you happy? You have to first define happiness. I mean, you can have a moment or a day where you're happy, but, you know, if your day-to-day -day life is unhappy, if you're not really happy day-to-day, -day, are you happy? If you're miserable day-to-day, -day, but you have a happy day, are you happy? Well, maybe you're happy for that day, happy for that moment. But if you're generally not happy, you're still not going to be happy. And I think 
one of the articles we brought up, the three myths of happiness, I think is what it was called. And I'll have to look. They discuss the concepts of, you know, how do you do what do you be? How are you happy? There's just three ways to tell if you've fallen for the happiness myth, is what they call it. Now, one, I always get um, skeptical, shall we say, when we have research scientists doing kind of research on emotions, things like happiness, because everybody defines happiness for themselves. And so it's very hard type of research to do. So, yes, it's very subjective. See, and happiness can have a dysfunctional as well as functional effects on, on well-being. You say is one of the points they're trying to make, which is true. If you're irrationally happy, or if you are looking for the emotional happiness without the structural happiness, so to speak, then you're just always looking for an emotional. It's like searching for an emotional high. You're always looking for your next happiness event, rather than enjoying being. Yes. And that I think is the happiness myth. If, See, the irrational happiness beliefs include feeling that you should, must, and ought to be happy. You don't have to be happy on any given moment. The goal is to be happy overall. Overall, yes. Because being happy in every moment of your life is literally impossible. It's just not possible. I don't care how positive outlook you know you are. It's just not possible. You're going to stub your toe on occasion, and you're not going to be happy about it. Yeah, life is going <laughs> to life on you. Come on. Uh, yeah, it's just, now you can get through it, you know, with good cheer and all that, but there's going to be times doing all that you're not going to be happy about it. You know, getting through something with good cheer does not mean you're happy about it. It means you're getting through it with good cheer. There's a different things. Now, being generally happy with your overall life can help you get through things in good cheer. Because it's a hell of a lot easier to get through things in good cheer if you're happy than if you're not. If you're lonely and sad, depressed, and you have a health crisis, it's harder than if you're happy and supportive and have every, all the other things you need in life. I mean, even if you're not rich, if you just have people that care about you, these things are easier to get through. And generally speaking, one of the kind of founding principles of being happy is having people around who care about you. And you having people to care about. That's really what makes us happy. You know, stuff, health, these things are fleeting. People you care about. People that care about you. Those are the things. You know, at, at people's funerals, and no one says he had a great man cave. No, he was great to hang out with. He was a fun guy. He liked to help people. And he loved whatever team he did and decorated his, his, his garage like that. But but you remember that he was fun to be around. Those are, those are the kinds of things that make us happy. It's not the stuff. That's, you know, in the best world, the stuff is a reflection of your happiness. 
So, all right. So, that our aberration beliefs. He said there's three things, and this isn't really labeled as three things. <laughs> okay. What are irrational happiness beliefs? Here we go. I should always be happy in all aspects of my life. And we just discussed that. That's literally not possible. That's literally not. Who can do that? You can get through the bad times in life with as much cheer as you can. You know, with as good a spirit because it makes it easier. It just makes it easier. It makes it easier. But, you know, it's, if you expect to be happy all the freaking time, you're in for a hard time because you're not managing your expectations realistically. And anytime you have unrealistic expectations, you're in for a hard time. You just are. Okay. Next one is I must always be happy in all aspects of my life. I should always be happy in all aspects of my life. I must always be happy. I must. And I ought to always be and happy. I ought to always be happy. Well, that's well, the, well, here's the thing. I deserve to be happy. I should find a way to be happy. And I ought to be around people who help make me happy and whom I know. Make them yeah. the, the problem with those phrases in all aspects of my life, that's just not possible. You're going to have it aches and your pains and, and bad things are going to happen to people you care about. And, you know, as you get older, people pass away. And, you know, life is hard. And if you expect to be happy all the time, you're not going to be happy at all. Just not. You know, it's a, it's it's an odd thing, but you gotta learn to. You know, happiness comes from, as we discussed, how you deal with the day to day grind, those you care about, those who, people who care about you, and having some value to your life. You feel you're doing something worthwhile. You feel you're helping people. Your friends, your family, your your job, even it doesn't really matter as long as you have something that you're feeling worthwhile. I mean, it can be volunteer work; it really doesn't matter. You know, you can have a worth a pointless job, but you you go and you feed homeless people for an hour and a half out of the day. You will be happier. You'll be tired, but you'll be happier. It's just well. Because you feel like you're doing something worthwhile and not just trudging through life. You know, you can trudge through, many people can trudge through life at a job you dislike, but because they're helping their kids through college, because they're raising a family, because they're making it so their spouse doesn't have to work, you know, they're happy because they're making other people happy. And because the people they are making happy are trying to make them happy. So the miserable job doesn't matter because the rest of their life is happy. Now, would they prefer a job that doesn't make them miserable? Sure. <laughs> but, you know, it's not always possible. Especially when you have kids and young ones, and responsibilities. So that's actually a pretty good article. But, you know, they talk about who's most likely to hold irrational beliefs. And some of these things get to percentages. And that's a terrible way to think of mental health. Mental health is an individual basis. 
these kind of things can give you directions to self for self-examination. But you know, it's well, 70% of people have this. Well, yeah, but 30 don't. So, and a lot of that stuff is, there's a lot of gray area in those percentages. So these things are good for general usage, not direct. And now here's one we can talk about. I treated it because it's, it's kind of personal. Help procrastination. There's actually not an article to list to it. It's just, there was a discussion I came across. I don't even remember where. For a group of friends, we're talking about help procrastination and how people will just, for a wide variety of reasons. Well, you, you can't know what's wrong if you don't look. But something's wrong. <laughs> even I'm not that dumb. <laughs> what's a, now, I'll ignore something. But I don't ignore it, so I don't find, I ignore it because I think I'll get better on my own. And, you know, I'm. You're you Superman or something. Or some, yeah. That's not even a thought. I that? just assume that I'm going to get better on my own. I'm tough old bird. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I've got the I'll be fine syndrome. <laughs> that's me. And that's how I, so it's not necessarily procrastination because of procrastination, even though me and my healthcare system haven't always gotten along but i don't procrastinate to assume i'm going to get better well, sometimes i get frustrated with certain aspects like i didn't procrastinate on my eye i gave up there's a difference oh okay it's not procrastination when you give it up i tried to get help i tried to get care it took three years and you still didn't do it so i gave up but we're trying again. <laughs> we got new. Yes, we are. We're trying again. And, and I'm not procrastinating this time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm trying to do better than I was because, I don't know. And it's not like a brush of death. I've had closer one. So it's not like a brush of death makes me have to rethink the thing. I just don't like being sick. Nobody likes being sick. Yes, but I stopped drinking because I don't like hangovers. I don't like the next day. Okay, what does that have to do with being sick? Well, it's the same thing. No. I, said, I now have to what? take better care of myself and my liver because it makes me sick if I don't, I don't like being sick. I see. Yes. Well, that's good logic. Not really. It works for you. No, it's a simple kind of sick. I'm being polite for the audience. It's not generally sick. No. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm using polite language. That's what, uh, yeah. See, I never connected, you know, a bad stomach with liver issues and all that. I didn't either. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have thought of that. Well, no, but that's I. That's the motivation I have to stop drinking all the soda I was drinking and to start eating a better diet and, and to be more careful with how, when I eat. It's literally something we don't like being said. Now, you know, who cares, right? I'm starting to eat healthier. And, and all that kind of stuff. So, like, the good causes out of it. But it's a really stupid reason. 
of all the reasons I could have to change my health. <laughs> that's the really stupid one. There's a lot better reasons, but that's the one that does it. The other ones mean nothing. That one. It's not like it adds up, you know, piling on, and that's kind of the straw. You know, no, no, no. That's just the one. I'm just saying, so health procrastination is a weird thing. It exists. And, you know, some people don't want to find out they're sick. They don't want to know what's wrong with them. So, there you go. Ignorance is bliss. And I can understand it. But at the same time, logically, you know, it's not smart. But also, logically, I, I can't even say I don't do it. I don't do it consciously. But... Well, because usually I know what's wrong, so I know they're not going to do anything. But, and then there's that. That's all health procrastination. That counts as well. And that's just me. I mean, I got about six, seven, eight things I could come up with just for me. So imagine all these other people out there, especially men like myself, because, you know, when you're a man in your 20s and 30s, you're invincible. You don't care. Sprains, strains. It had to be fine in a couple of days. And it's true. You get older like me and you've got bad knees, bad hips, bad neck, <laughs> bad liver for reasons because you know, I don't drink, but I got a bad liver. Yeah, just is what it is. But, and yet I, I still procrastinate. Not as much as you're used to, though. No. But procrastination is a thing. All right. <coughs> Here we almost hit some couple hit a question. How can I encourage my partner to be a more hands-on parent? And there's an article I, listed. I, I read it. this article, and um. But I actually don't think we even need to. Talk to the article about it. She's she's stepping in and doing everything. She's and I would suggest assigning certain tasks: brushing the teeth, getting ready for bed. Let that be his task. Of course, but there's a side note to that. What? Let him do it his way. Oh yeah, you gotta let him do it his way. You can't other. Yes, if you're going to do it, that's off. You know, I don't want to say off because it's hard to know how. For many of the fathers I've known over the years, that is one of the biggest frustrations and why they give up trying to help. It's because you essentially got woman's planning. You know, they'll figure it out. They'll figure out how to do a bath together. Don't worry. He's not going to let them drown. He loves his child. He's not going to let it drown. <laughs> let them figure it out. He's going to do it different than you. It's okay. You know, he's not going to change the diaper the same way. As long as it stays on at the end, it's fine. <laughs> you know, and you know what? The first few, yours didn't stay on either. <laughs> right? Let him choose the outfit. So what if the kid's mismatched? It's a child. No one cares. They're cute anyway. You know, they may have had a negotiation. I get to listen here to, you know, my son and my grandson 
he's old enough to, now to, to, you know, kind of say, I don't want to wear that without, acting, you know, he doesn't actually get to use words. So there's like arguments going on in the morning and the kid's three, you know, <laughs> what he wants to wear to school. <laughs> They're going to have a great time with this one. <laughs> All right. Cause he's a kid. He wants to wear what he wants to wear. And, you know, he wants his favorite shirt. And was, you know, as long as it's heat appropriate, you know, but of course, yeah, you've got school and whatever, all this kind of thing. So, anyway, I'd let him wear whatever the hell they want. As long as you're dressed, I don't care. Get out. <laughs> as long as you got appropriate typish clothes on, match, mismatch, wear different shoes. I don't care if you're wearing a boot and a slipper. Get out the house. <laughs> but I had a lot of kids. So, you know, it was, it was just as long as we're all out the house on time and you're, you know, dressed enough for public use. It's fine. But one of the keys, I think, for getting your spouse, regardless of whether it's a, the other one, because it's not always to help out where you would like them to help out. Is one you've got to ask, be clear, and be clear why. Right? If you're feeling overwhelmed, say you're feeling overwhelmed. If you're worried about you, you having enough time together and you're building some one-on-one time with the baby, say that. Because the first six to nine months of, of, of a baby, men are like, the third wheel on a date, right? They're like the friends you bring along on a, on a date because you feel sorry for them because they just broke up or something. You know, they're just kind of awkward because there's not a lot you can actually do except support the mother. For most cases, you know, as a general rule of thumb, it's a little different now than it used to be, but not much. Right? Because breastfeeding is best for the baby and everybody tries to support that. And that means the mother takes a lot of care for the baby in those first six, nine months. It's just the nature of things. And it's hard to break that habit for both parents. It's not just a man or woman thing. For both parents, you've developed a habit. And, you know, those things are hard to break. But empathy and understanding, rather than accusations and frustration, this generally gets better result. Because if you actually ask in a moment of frustration, you're not going to ask the way you're going. No, no. Now, sometimes the men deserve moments of frustration and, you know, we don't step up enough and we fall into that trap and we don't listen as well as we could. And so all these things are true. You know, there are stereotypes. I keep saying, you know, these types of stereotypes that stick around for a long, long time. You know, these kind of gender stereotypes that have stuck around for a long, long time. They're not good, bad. They just exist. You know, like women have a tendency to be more caring and nurturing and men have a tendency to let their children go off and take risks more. Yes, those are both true. A tendency. You know, that means that's a, you know, it's not universal, but there's tendencies. There's general tendencies. And there's reasons for these things. One is that the woman carried that thing around in her and breastfed it and she protected it all through its most precious, vulnerable years. 
And then now you go off to the guy, and he's going to go off to it and let it climb trees and mountains and jump. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> and the thing is, yeah, you need both. You need to be able to have that confidence to try new things, to, to, to you know, to be a, you know, to, to understand that you can fail and pick yourself back up. And, you know, sometimes life, you get hurt and these things happen and that's how you deal with them. And these are the hard lessons that are often hard for women to allow to happen. And it's completely understandable. Again, I understand the psychology for it. I don't blame them. And it's very hard to, to let go. That's why often they don't. That's why often they look away. They know their husband and children are off doing things they would not be happy about. They pretend not to know so they don't have to because they know it's better for everybody if they shut up and let them do it. <laughs> but it breaks their heart. They're worried. They're sick. And, eh, be, but being a parent is hard. you got to put your big person pants on. Both of you. And if one person isn't doing enough, find out why. Do it gently. No, all things do it gently because you want solutions, not confrontations. Fights break things. Help things. Even when they're uncomfortable. Okay. Are we going to take a break? And we are back. Thank you all for joining us. And we will cover some of our advertisements here. You can visit us at latenightlove.us and sign up for our newsletter. You can find those links in the description of the videos. You can find our podcast at anchor.fm slash late night love. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook slash the late night love. And you can find us on a wide variety of podcast networks. If you want to leave us a message, you can send one to love at latenightlove.us and we'll be able to answer those. Yep. And if you need to send us on Twitter, you can hit me up at Jazzrack. And I think I covered most of it. If not, you guys are smart enough to know what to do. Like, subscribe, share, blah, 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 blah. Okay. All the ugly business is over. We can go on. Let's go. Ahead. I'm going to skip some of these two articles. And let's go some of these questions. Yes, thank you. <laughs> what did your mother or father say to you when you were young that you remember your whole life? Well, I don't remember my mother and father, but I remember my grandpa told me something. I was 13 years old. I didn't say stupid. And he told, he came out and he looked at me and goes, you know, nobody can tell you nothing. And I didn't know what he was talking about. It took 30 years and a year in AA before I finally figured out. I don't take direction very well. Well, my mother... He used to tell me about cutting my nose off to spot my face. Did she really? Despite, yes. Yeah. She used to continue to tell me all the time because, you know, I'm a habit of doing those kinds of things. Cut your nose off to spite your face. And yes, I will. Just out of spite. I will. Just because. Yeah. The whole oppositional thing. 
Yes. And, but the other one I remember is my grandpa used to say, Cat never did anything. That was one grandpa used to like to say. Now, I have a laundry list of my own I'm, <laughs> that my poor kids have to have to deal with. <laughs> that sounds like a personal problem. Pretty is as pretty does. Um, let's see. What was let's see, what's the other one? Uh, it's good to want things. Builds character when you don't get it. <laughs> that's one of my favorite ones. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, I especially like it when you say it to me. Yes, well, I didn't say other people like it. I said I like it. That's <laughs> got nothing to do with other people. This was me. Okay, this next one is actually a bit concerning. And I was actually contemplating not to put it on the list today. Oh, really? Yeah. But I did it anyway because we're not afraid to talk about things here. So why does my 17-year-old daughter skip meals and wearing long sleeves and pants even though it's 107 degrees? I keep telling her to change into something more appropriate for the weather, but she panics every time I ask. Now, by itself, the wearing the long clothes in 107 degrees doesn't bother me. I've seen enough kids with autism or slightly autistic who, for whatever reason, wear long sleeve clothes even in the heat. Even, especially, in, and if they're light long sleeve clothes, there's actually an argument that it's better. But there's a combination of those things that actually concern me. And the only thing I could think of, without panicking, because it never hurts is to go see some family therapy. Yes. Because something's going on. There's 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 something going there on. There are signs that something is going on and you want to be very careful to not ignore them, but you also want to be careful enough that if it's a small thing, if it's not something serious like you know, drug addictions or or um oh anorexia or, you know, it's just she's uncomfortable with her body. That needs to be dealt with, too. Yes. And so, regardless if it's something relatively minor that, you know, can be dealt with or something more severe, it's time for you as a parent. And she's 17. You only have a year left where you can actually have much control if she's going downhill. So do it now. The worst thing that can happen is your daughter learns to talk in therapy. It's literally the worst thing that can happen. And you know, there's not a 17-year-old on the planet who couldn't use a little bit of therapy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's just not. But frankly, there's not many people on the planet who couldn't use a little bit of therapy. Therapy, yeah. Nice sounding board. Yeah, so... Now, a lot of people get it in different ways to direct therapy, but there's that combination that worries me on that particular thing. None of those things individually actually worry me that much. It's the combination of something that strikes a chord as an experienced parent. Uh, Yeah, me too. So why do I feel like I'm an emotional pillow for others to cry on? Why my feelings don't matter? Now, I can explain the first part of the question. 
That's easy. Because you're an empathetic, sympathetic person. People can trust you with their feelings. And so they come to you to cry on because you're trustworthy with their emotions. That's why they keep coming to you. In a way, it's a gift. But as you notice, you have to protect yourself as well. And that's what you're noticing because it's draining and your feelings do matter, but what you need to do is you need to find your pillows to cry on. Some of those people who come cry on these pillows are willing to, to do the same for you. And it's time for you to use them. That's how relationships work. They trust you. Find a few of them to, for you to trust. You know which ones they are. You just have to trust them. It's not that you don't have your feelings don't matter. You're not letting people be your pillow. And if you are and they turned you away, you chose the wrong ones, then that's a different question. You need to get better at choosing ones. That may be part of the equation as well. So you're just afraid of being rejected, so you don't. But there are people out there, probably many of those same that use the same people that use you for an emotional fellow are willing to do the same because they appreciate what you can do for them. Find the ones you trust the most, turn to them. At least one of them will be there for you. Okay. Anything I add on that one? No. Okay. You summed it up very nicely. I am 18 and on birth control. Man, it's a pregnancy thing. Again. I'm 18 on birth control and I want a kid. What should I do? Think very carefully. Well, first, you want to understand why you want a child. And you're going to have to think very hard about that one. Do you want a child because you want something to love? Or do you want a child because one of your goals in life is to raise a family and the whole, you know, you, you've got the whole picture of the house that you got the whole thing, is it? Or are you desperate for love? Because if you're desperate for love, that's the wrong reason. If wanting a child is part of your dream, you want a child, you've wanted a family and it's been part of you since you're a little girl and all that, you know, be smart about it. It's fine to want. Be smart about it. Probably not a great idea at 18. I'm not going to say don't do it, but it's probably not a great freaking idea. You know, if you want to be the best parent you can be, you still have some learning to do, some so, growing yeah. to do. Yeah. Even if you want to be a house, even if you want to be a housewife and you have somebody who's willing to, to be the a sole provider, you still have tasks and duties and education to do. You know, maybe it's not traditional. Maybe it's going to school. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's taking home economic classes. You know, maybe it's maybe it's going to chef school or, you know, whatever it is. There's still education for you to do. If you want to raise a family, especially these days, you have to prepare yourself for it. Because it's far better for you and your child. Now, with that said, do people 
turn out fine who don't. Yeah. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder. Life is hard enough. You don't need to make it harder. Trust me. I am one who has accidentally on purpose made my life harder many, many, many times. Don't do what I've done. Learn from people like me who are telling you plan these things. Be prepared. It's perfectly fine to want them. It's perfectly fine to want them young. Just make sure you've planned it. And you're not doing this on plan on our panic. And your plans are gonna change, right? But it's it's less about your having your plan and having it followed exactly. It's so at least you have some idea of which direction you're going. So you don't feel lost. You know, because plans will change. Life will come at you. Plans will change. You'll you'll learn more things and you realize that's not what you really wanted. You really wanted it. And that's all fine. But at least you won't be feeling lost. But the most important thing is, is the first question. is Why do you want this? Do you want it because wanting a family is part of your lifetime goal and just want to raise a family and that's your natural instinct or is it because you're desperate for love and affection and you think that a baby will give you love back and you will but that's not the right reason to have one it's unfair to that child you're you're having a child and you're assigning an agenda to this child before you have it yeah yeah it's just the wrong reason it's going to turn out badly it's we talked, we started the thing about happiness and bringing happiness. Well, you've got to think about your happiness. And that's not actually, you're unhappy. And if you're looking for a baby to make you happy, that's not going to make you happy. The baby by itself will not make you happy. It's going to make your life more complicated. A baby brings wondrous joys. And if the rest of your life is in order, you cannot be happier. That is true. <laughs> But if your life is chaos and you're already unhappy, you just add a baby to the mix. You're just adding a baby to the mix. And yeah, you're adding love, but you're adding love to chaos. You're just going to have chaotic love. You know, who knows how that turns out? Anyway, enough of that. Okay, my mother, <laughs> this one. My mother-in-law expects my husband and me to continue raising his niece. She's 15, even though we're expecting our first child this year. Am I being selfish by want by wanting my sister-in-law to raise her own kids? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yeah. Well, what are the well to no one? Yes. What are the what are the circumstances? Well, let me put it this way: if someone meets, it's probably not a good home circumstance, right? Because you don't send your child to your to your brother brother because you're having a good time. Now, is it selfish to feel that way? No, no, it's not perfectly at natural to feel Absolutely. that. Absolutely, what you do with that feeling is what is whether it becomes selfish or not. 
Now, I can't sit here and tell you whether you should continue raising that a dog, someone else's child at 15 years old. But what I can tell you is helping a young adult, a young person coming to a successful adult is one of the most rewarding experiences you can have. And so while it's hard and I understand the frustrations, I don't think you're thinking of the rewards you can have. And so in a sense, maybe you are being a little selfish. You're doing a wonderful thing. Raising a child in a better environment than they otherwise would have is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful human thing you're doing. I think maybe you need to understand that. You're giving a great gift. It's a great gift you're giving to somebody. And I can understand, say, I, we've got a lot to do. There's a lot on our plate. And, you know, maybe this is a 15-year-old living away from his parents. They're probably having, living away from, you know, they're probably having not, they're having emotional issues. I'm pretty sure at that age, at 15, your mom sent you away to live with your uncle for some reason or another. You're going to be feeling rejected. And then you're going to be rejected by the people who don't raise you. You know, when you said yes, you took on some responsibility. And I know it's hard. But all I just want to say is you're doing a wonderful thing. I couldn't judge somebody one way or the other. But helping raise a child in a better environment is a wonderful, beautiful thing. And that's all I really have to say. Okay. Okay, here's one. My daughter told me that my 11-year-old granddaughter doesn't want to FaceTime with me because I talk about sad stuff. I am devastated. She refuses to talk to me. What should I do? Well, the first thing you should do is... Promise that you won't talk about sad stuff. Well, yeah. Well, first, and find out what you consider sad. Yeah. What exactly is upsetting her? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, are you talking about your aches and pains? Are you talking about family stuff that the eleven-year-old doesn't want to hear about? What? Yeah. You're gonna have to. You know, you've kind of your grandson's a little younger, but you have to, in a sense. If you're that disconnected, when you, you know, from a grandchildren, you really have to work very hard at being able to relate with them. You have to know what they're interested in. Yes. Because they have no way of knowing what you're interested in. <laughs> and they're not going to be. And they're the child and you're the adult. It's your job to be interesting, not theirs. Now I grew. Now I understand the emotion. I can feel for it being devastated. Oh God, yeah, I'd be <laughs> devastated too. But it, you're the adult. Your your job here is to okay. I you know I'm talking about things that they don't want to talk about, and especially if they're upsetting them, stop talking about sad stuff. Now getting to the point where you're going to be trusted again to not talk about sad stuff is is going to be a difficult road, and I feel for you. I really do. 
and you wish you wouldn't have to, you know, you wish you could have interjected something sooner, but, you know, you're dealing with children and, you know, you miss the signals and you miss the signals and what are you going to do? You can't, you can't go back and not do it. So you try and clean up the spilt milk. You promise to stop talking about sad stuff. And you talk about, I don't know, whatever they're interested in, whatever game they're interested in. If they're interested in a video game, find out something about it that you can talk about. Or we do what we, you know, I'd find some new interesting thing about space every now and again. So you give something about space to, to talk to you. My grandson loves space. And yeah. so when I hear, when I hear something, there's some new discovery about something. I tell you about it. So now you have something to talk to your grandson about. There's things you can do. And I ask him, so anything you want to talk about? I mean, I ask him, I leave the floor open for him. Yeah. So, Usually he says no, but he knows that I'm available, and that's yeah. what that's what matters. Yeah. So, you know, drop your expectations what the conversation should be. You know, you may have to accept just being willing to say hi. And it's going to be hard. That's another. Are you expecting a long video call? Yeah. Because... I think you may need to tweak your expectations there. Look, I promise not to tag side, but yeah. And you're gonna have to start with that. You're gonna have to be happy with that for a little while. And over time, you'll become trusted. And just don't talk about sad stuff unless he brings it up. You know, my guess is you're talking about your day and stuff that's going on because that's what you know. And to a 11 year old, that's sad. You're talking about aches and pains and people's health issues and and trials and tribulations and 11 year olds. They can't they don't can't wrap their head around it for one thing. They don't have a frame of reference. So talk about what they want to talk about. Find them. You want to know about them. You don't. Yeah. You want to know them. You don't need them to know about you. You want to know. Them. Another idea is you can read a book. A couple. You can read a couple pages every time you call. It gives you a focus. Okay. And yeah. So those are good ones. Here's another one that's both heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time. What? Okay. So how do I help my eight-year-old understand that the goal of foster care is not adoption? We foster kids. My goddaughter gets depressed every time kids reunite with their own parents after two or three years of living with us. In most cases, parents fix their issues. And so that's one of these things. It's both heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time. Because here you have this family who's clearly a loving, caring family. These kids come in here, they stay for two or three years while their parents fix their issues. And you have this eight-year-old daughter who becomes detached to these kids. Of course you do. You're a loving, caring household. Of course you do. And then you have to see them go. And new ones get brought in. And in a sense... For an eight-year-old, that is a wonderfully difficult thing to see and to go through. 
because it's a wonderful experience to, to share for them. You're sharing with a child that, hey, look, you can care about people. You can care about things more than yourselves. You can help people rebuild their lives and you can help people have children and families. You can actually make a difference. But at the same time, you're having people come in and out of your life that you care about. And, you know, as a child, that can be devastating. Now, how do you get your eight-year-old to understand? They're never going to, they're not going to fully understand faith. They're just not. They're not. But what you can tell them is that, you know, you have to frame it. I think we had a discussion that serves. You have to frame it in some way they can understand. You tell them their parents had to go learn how to be better parents. And we were giving them a, we were helping them by watching their kids for them, by taking care of them and letting them continue to grow while they did this. But it's time for them to go back home. Wouldn't you want to come back home? If we had to go away and do some learning, wouldn't you want to come see us again? And that's a frame of reference they can understand because they understand school. You understand learning. You understand that you have to sometimes go away from your house to learn things. And then you come back later. And while it's a bigger leap, they can make that connection. Or they have a chance of making that connection. At eight years old, it's probably right about where they can start making that connection. Which is why they're asking But all I can say is approach the, the way you're approaching the rest of your lives. You are clearly a loving, caring family. You will find your way through it. That's again, it's a wonderful gift you're giving when you help people. When you help children have a better, have a better life. It's a wonderful thing. Okay. And here's one that's just kind of funny. <laughs> My daughter shaved her hair off and dyed it bright green. Well, I don't mean, so I guess you mean she shaved from long hair to shorter hair and then dyed it bright green. And grounded her for one month, but she has been sneaking out. What do I do now? Well, what you've done now is created a child in full-scale rebellion. Yes, you've done. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. Now, why you were got to that point, it's impossible to know, but... But that's what the whole cutting the hair and making it green was. And then you reinforced it by grounding her over it. And then she says, well, you can't control me. And he's sneaking out. And you're smart to ask a question because you know that this is a scale up. It's not going to go well. You can't keep this pattern. Right? Because right now she's probably just sneaking out, going to her friend's house to complain about you. If you're lucky, they're just smoking some pot. <laughs> you know, if you're lucky. But if you push much harder, every action has going up. The thing with the hair, which you should have done, is say, well, I think it looks goofy, but it's your hair. I know it's hard. But then they don't have anything to rebel against. It does look goofy. She knows it looks goofy. 
They're just telling themselves it looks good. They know it looks goofy. They're doing it because she knew it would irritate you. That's why they did it. <laughs> and so the way to de-escalate that is to not let it irritate you. Now you've got a problem because now they're sneaking out. And sneaking out is dangerous for young boys. It's doubly dangerous for young girls. It's right or wrong, you know, you can complain about it shouldn't be that way, but life is the way life is. It's just doubly dangerous for young girls. And so you're going to have to have a better strategy. And I'm not sure. Because the problem is, I don't know what has proceeded to the point where why she's cutting off her hair and dying green. So I can't actually give a decent answer. I need more data. I'm coming in at the end, the last act. And I haven't seen the rest of the movie. I don't know what happened. And so you're just as likely to make things worse as you are to make things better because, you know, I don't know how much she's tried to talk to her daughter. I don't know if her daughter has an oppositional disorder and needs to be dealt with you know, through counseling, or if this is just a standard rebellion phase, and, you know, you've, in a sense, it's like you do it, you know, when you have a a bomb, you take it out to some place and into the wild and detonate it so it doesn't hurt anybody. (laughs) You know, this is the type of thing. Yeah, you let it go off, but you let it go off in a way where it doesn't hurt anybody. The chance of damage is greatly reduced. That's what I did with my kids. I let them rebel a little bit, so they never actually fully rebel. You know, let them rebel in a controlled fashion, and, and then you don't have as much problem. But we have our own unique issues in our own area, and there's reasons that. Yeah, was... I know those tattoos were tough on you. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at that age, yeah, but they waited until she was 18. She thought she went off and got sneaky tattoos. No, she didn't sneak. No, no, no. No. She was 18. It was all on the up and up, but I know it was so hard on you. Yeah, it was literally like her 18th birthday. She went and did it because, she, you know, but yeah, but that was the rebellion, you know. Okay, I'll take it. (laughs) At 18, I'm going to go get a tattoo. Okay, you can rebel against me that way. If that's my teenager rebellion, I'll take it every time. (laughs) Seriously, I'll take that one. If that's the rebellion, I'll take it happily. Not even complain. But (laughs) but yeah, now you've got a child. And I'm going, I can rebel. In a sense, I can relate, and I can't think of a damn thing my parents could have done that would have made things better at that stage. Which is why I'm struggling over here, rambling, trying to come up with some kind of coherent answer for that question. I don't actually have one. There should be a bell or something we can ring for the first time. I don't have a, I don't have a good answer for something. It's happened before. Yeah, but it doesn't happen often. No, not often. I don't have a good answer. Mm-hmm. I would suggest counseling to improve communication. 
because communication is broken down. <coughs> yeah, they don't know how to talk to each other. Right. Yeah, but how that happened. Uh, see, for me, it's just I need more information. I could probably come over with here and answer if I had more information on how the relationship was going, why she's, why she decided, what preceded the decision to cut her hair and turn it green. What was the trigger for that one? That's anybody's guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, anyway. <laughs> but, okay, here's one for us. What will I lose after I reach 40 years old? What do you lose? What do you lose? Well, <laughs> recuperative power. Is, I think yeah, is is, is the, the is the big one. Is the big one. Yeah, and you can sleep wrong. Yeah, yeah. That it takes three days to get your neck back into shape. Yeah, what used to what used to you know you go out and you overexert yourself and you'd sore for a day, maybe two. Now you're sore for a week, maybe yeah. two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the difference at 40. But oddly enough, what you gained is knowledge, experience, and wisdom. Big time. You know, all that stuff, all those learnings, all those failures you've had in those decades previously, all those lessons start to come together. You actually start to be confident in, in, in the world. You start to know yourself. You know, you, in a sense, the world starts to slow down. You know, it's in a sense, it's like an experienced quarterback in a football game. I excuse the reference, but you know, the game moves slower for them. They know what to expect. They know what people are doing. They know where people are going to be. They've seen everything before. You know, yeah, they're not as strong as they used to be. There's not as much zip on it, but you can still get the ball where it needs to go. When we just had a 45-year-old guy win the Super Bowl, quarterback win the Super Bowl. And he didn't do it because he's a, you know, athletic, in his athletic prime. He did it with his brains. And that's what you gain after 40. You gain brains. All right, so we've got a couple minutes here. So, is it really so wrong to have a favorite son or daughter? This is a difficult question for me to answer. Because <laughs> I have so many kids and partial kids. And, and adopted kids, not, you know, quasi-adopted kids, I guess. Acquired children. That I don't have a favorite. I can honestly say there's no, I, the love is equal, and I all I like them all equally. You can actually, you know, you've heard people say I love all my children equally, but you know, John, little Johnny's over there is an asshole. No, I don't have any assholes. No, <laughs> me either. They're all good people. I love spending time with them. They're they're all they're both they're all three unique in their own way. But I mean, I suppose if you have a, one of your children is a doctor and the other one's a serial killer, I suppose it's perfectly acceptable to like one more than the other. Well, in that extreme case, I would say, yeah, I'd give that a pass. <laughs> well, if you can give it a pass in the extreme case, then can you give it a pass in less extreme cases? Probably. 
depends on how big of an asshole they are. Yeah. So, so no. Is it always wrong to have a favorite or a, let's say not maybe a favorite, a least favorite child? Let's look at it that way. No. But all things being equal, it's probably not the greatest idea. You probably should do some introspection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think what's more important is that you treat them all equally. That's not, that's very important. But equally does not mean the same. Children are all different. Of course, their needs are different. Yeah. So the treating them equally is, means that you do your best to feel the needs of the individual child, not necessarily treat them all the same way. Because <laughs> if you treat all the children the same way, if you have one extrovert and one introvert and you're trying to treat them exactly the same, you're not doing either one a favor. Because, you know, what's your choices? You're either going to pick a middle road, which doesn't really work for either of them, or you're going to pick a road for one or the other, which isn't good for one, which isn't going to be the good for the relationship together, and it's not good for anybody. Because one's going to feel that you're their favorite, and they'll have an argument, even though you weren't intending to. Accidental favorites happen based upon parenting style. It's not that it's an actual favorite, since your parenting style accidentally favors one over the other. So that's the danger of saying I treat them all equally or the same. You can't. People aren't the same. Children aren't the same. They all develop differently. They all have different wants, needs, desires. And as children, they don't even know what those are. Now, having a general philosophy is one thing. And then you apply that philosophy, but it has to have enough flexibility to work for all children. You have to be willing to apply it on an individual basis. You have your parenting philosophy, and then you factor in the needs, wants, and personality of the child. And the context of what they're living in. Because if you've got me and you've got five kids, by the time you get to the last one, you know, the world's a different place. You know, 10 years from before you had your first kid to when you have the last one, 10, 11 years. Well, it's a different place. You have different needs. You know, kindergarten's a different place for your oldest child than it is for your youngest child when it's that far apart, 10, 12 years apart. It just is. You can't teach people to treat them the same. But you can love them the same. With all your heart, everything you have, and you try your best to do what's best for everybody. Is it possible? No. Attempt. And that is us for tonight. You can visit us at latenightlove.us. You can find us at Facebook at the Late Night Love and various other social media outlets. 
you just Google late night love or no, not Google. For the love of God, don't use Google. Use another engine, any other search engine for the love of sake. And Google late night love, you will probably find us. But of course, if you're listening to us, you know how to find us. So like, subscribe, share, do all that stuff that I hate to say. And we will see you next time from remote location. Hopefully. 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 And hopefully we'll have a working microphones and we'll be all set. We will see you guys next time. And for me and Lovey, please remember to love everybody. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.